Like that's a damn good investment from Vladimir Putin. Like he's getting really good return on his investment right now. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup, Olivier Knox. Olivier is a veteran politics and foreign policy reporter, most recently at The Washington Post. He previously hosted a national Sirius XM show and covered politics and policy at Yahoo News and Agence France Press, and is a former president of the White House Correspondents Association. Olivier, welcome back to Politicology. Merci. Also returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, a fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He's now a senior fellow at the University of California at Irvine School of Social Ecology, Mike Madrid. Mike is going to take me a couple times to get used to saying that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a change uh, from USC going from uh, private to public uh, institutions is always a little bit more complicated, especially when you get to pronunciations. But great to be here with you guys. Maybe fitting for your uh, political trajectory. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's appropriate for my political trajectory. I just okay. kind of keep riding the wave. Up first this week, congressional Republicans are looking to torpedo the border deal as Biden pledges to shut down the border, his words, if they give him the authority to do so. Then Iranian-backed militias killed three U.S. soldiers and injured over 40 others in an attack in Jordan. We'll discuss the escalating Middle East conflict's impact on the presidential race. Later on, we're going to talk about Nikki Haley, finally, starting to hit Trump hard now that the primary is, well, all but over. Then. We'll find out what other political developments our panel are watching and why. After the main show, we're going to tape our Politicology Plus episode, where we will talk about the MAGA conspiracy theory that Taylor Swift is a psychological operation put together by the NFL, DOD, and the Democratic Party. Yes, it's going to be a weird one, folks. If you'd like to support the work we're doing here, the best way to do that is with a Politicology Plus subscription, uh, because you'll get access to that discussion, plus every other Politicology Plus episode all in a private ad-free podcast feed. To subscribe today, go to politicology.com slash plus, or just open the show notes for this episode in your podcast player and click the link right at the top. After weeks and weeks of trying to hammer out a deal on border security, Senate Republicans are telling Politico now that it may already be doomed. There isn't official text for the bill yet. There are lots of internet rumors swirling. Uh, But members involved in the negotiations did reach a general framework, which would include imposing more stringent qualifications for getting asylum, changing the use of parole for migrants, which has been a sticking point, and creating a mechanism to effectively close down the border on days when crossings are high. I mentioned internet rumors. There are numbers like 4,000 or 5,000 daily encounters being uh, uh, bandied about as the threshold for that, Uh, but we don't really know yet. In the most surprising and, um, I would say, welcome plot twist, President Biden has praised the deal. The White House put out a statement last Friday in which Biden said that he would use the new emergency authorities to shut down the border the day he signed it into law if it passes Congress. Uh, He also described the framework as, quote, the toughest and fairest set of reforms to secure the border we've ever had in our country. Uh, As we talked about last week, Donald Trump has denounced the bill. He wants to keep the border as a campaign issue, obviously. And last week, we talked about Mitch McConnell's comments about the politics of border border changing. Um, And uh, Liz Cheney gave an interview with Pod Save America last week about those comments where uh, she said this. 
Yeah, I mean, this this case in particular just strikes me as, as you know, um, really uh, disgusting. Um, you know, if if it's true that McConnell said, you know, basically, you know, we thought we had a deal, but now it looks like, you know, Trump's going to be the nominee and he wants to run on this. Um, I mean, that that is so cynical and and irresponsible um, and, um, you know, surprising, frankly. Surprising, frankly, was exactly how I felt about it, Mike. In the House, Johnson is expected to torpedo the deal, but some Republicans have pushed against his firm opposition to the bill. You'll recall former interim speaker Patrick McHenry, uh, who I think is retiring now and acknowledged that Democrats have yielded on some of their demands and is now pushing Johnson to take incremental steps. Uh, And then this weekend, Senator James Langford, who's uh, uh, leading the Republican negotiations in the Senate, was on Fox News Sunday, and he told uh, the host, Republicans four months ago locked arms together and said, we're not going to give you money for this. We want a change in law. A few months later, when we're finally getting to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want a change in law because it's a presidential election year. And now the Oklahoma Republican Party is uh, condemning him for negotiating with Democrats. Uh, Last week, Wall Street Journal's editorial board warned Republicans against torpedoing the deal. They said it'd be a self-inflicted wound. Uh, But, 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 but the longer this remains unsolved, um, the more vulnerable Biden looks here. And we have a new morning uh, morning consult Bloomberg poll that shows the number of voters who said that immigration was the single most important issue to them went up in six of the seven battleground states polled between November, January. And here's the key. Voters in those states say they trust Trump to handle immigration more than Biden by a whopping 22 points, which is up five points just from a couple of months ago. So how does Biden's statement uh, change the dynamics here, Mike? Because this happened right after we taped our last show or a couple of days afterwards. So this is new for the roundup. Yeah, look, the dynamics of immigration have changed in a really intriguing way. Again, as somebody who's been very deeply involved in a lot of these attempts for the past three decades, since at least, you know, the early 1990s, this is, this is, you're watching both parties fumbling awkwardly with their new positions. You have the Democrats and Biden who is poised to run offense on this issue, but isn't quite sure exactly how to do it. You've got Republicans on defense who are clearly uh, not sure how to do it. Um, and, and so for the moment, what I think is likely to happen is Biden's going to need to start, again, just moving the ball down the field. And I would do it aggressively. Um, you know, Negotiating by press release is not going to get him to where he needs to get in the minds of the American public. And what they're not used to, Biden's people are not used to, and Biden himself are not used to, again, is is the comfort of pushing their base aside and moving into the center where most voters, including a very, very wide swath of Latino voters that he's been losing over the course of the past uh, few years uh, are at. And Democrats are going to have to get comfortable with the idea that it's not only okay to be in this place on immigration, there's no other way out, mainly because it's good and necessary policy at this moment in time. There's a real danger for Republicans here. And that's what you're seeing is without, without the immigration issue, the, the whole thing collapsed. The emperor has no clothes. And that's why they're holding on to it so desperately. Now they, they can't hold on for eight months and keep saying, no, no deal, no deal. Um, you know, Biden, I think is in a, is in a commanding position right now. And he's going to have to get more aggressive before something 
on the domestic front happens, when Donald Trump stands there on the podium and says there's 100% certainty something's going to happen, he's signaling to somebody out there to do something the way he did in 2016, saying, Russia, if you're listening, look at our emails, release those emails, right? Then suddenly these things start appearing. Like there's a correlation here. And so uh, it, the more Biden gets out there on this and tightens up those numbers, those that leaking number on this weak, weak issue, the more he basically, I think, starts to consolidate um, his position with the voters. Incidentally, even though Morning Consult uh, did show that, there's at least two polls that came out nationally showing Biden starting to consolidate independence and, and his Democratic base right on time, like we've been talking about here on the show. Right after New Hampshire, when the race moves from the abstract to the existential, Biden's numbers are going to move up. And lo and behold, they're starting to move up. Now, it'll take a little while to have that reflected in the averages, but all we're looking for is movement right now, as we say, right? And so uh, the more he takes an offensive position, especially in light of the rest of the world uh, devolving into conflict, he's going to have to be a wartime president. Um, he, we're at war, whether he believes it or not. Uh, whether it's conventional or not, that's where I think the sense and the sentiment of the American public is at. And I think it's an extraordinary opportunity to shore up a lot of his weaknesses and force the Republicans' hand when they're bluffing. They don't have a hand. There will be a break in the Senate. Uh, it's already there. If he, if he just steps on the gas, has the Senate break th to have a bipartisan compromise with Biden standing at or near the border with Republican senators saying, give me a bill today and I'll sign it and we'll stop this thing and we'll bring it down to zero and having Johnson saying no. I mean, what do you do at that point as a, as, as Speaker of the House with a one-vote majority? You're screwed. Uh, and, and Trump is the one who starts to own this this issue, which, again, they're not used to playing defense. Um, yeah. and, and, again, the, the Democrats aren't used to playing offense, so so that's where we're at. Olivia, I am – I'm. Quickly cu curious about your whether you thought that you saw this as much as a surprise as I did. Biden using rhetoric like shutting down the border, which seems to be you know he came out of hiding almost on an issue that he's been you know beaten over the head with for so long. But but more broadly, uh, later in that interview, Cheney talked about how uh, if this deal gets torpedoed to help Trump, it will confirm the frustrations people have with politics. And I wonder how much of an impact you think that could have. Um, I, I think that's I think that's broadly true. But remember, Trump walked away from a pretty comprehensive deal when he was president, right? Remember, the Democrats were on board with a deal that would have built the wall, among other things. Um, and he stormed off, uh, you know, in a fit of peak. And I don't know that that hurt Donald Trump at all. Uh, certainly not with his base. The The trick here, I, I was surprised that, that Biden came out the way he did. Um, because this has been a political sucking chest wound for him for such a for such a stretch of time, um, and because it it and a few other policies are endangering his uh, standing with the the left part of his coalition, right? The, so you've got things like um, Gaza, things like his new border rhetoric. You have some stuff where they seem to be calculating that. Um, it's the choice election, me or Trump, and issues like abortion will compensate for that. But it's a tricky, it's a tricky play. I mean, as it stands right now, I think you're going to get 435 uh, House races. Actually, I should say 18 in particular, where that's the the number of, of Repub Republicans who are in Biden districts. You're going to have a bunch of races in which the Democrats say, "Hold on a second, we offered you all these things, 
we we were ready to make all these difficult compromises and you guys you guys wouldn't do it remember too and this uh, joe biden is about to have the largest audience any politician will have this year with the state of the union we're going to know a lot more about the politics of immigration at the end of that speech right we're going to know a lot more about who's who's cheering what uh, you know, will the camera be on AOC when he comes out and says we need a, you know, we need a, a border deal that does the following things? Um, and we're going to see how the how the Republicans respond. You know, the Biden White House is, was very pleased with the last State of the Union. Uh, they were very pleased with Biden, you know, saying that we shouldn't cut Social Security, Medicare, et cetera. And and he basically ad libbed a victory there. You know, when when Republicans came out and said, you know, no, no, we're on board with that too, and they, I think they're looking for a similar moment uh, on on immigration, um, and I think the White House is also trying to is also going to be trying to do to to blunt what is the main uh, Republican argument right now, which is Biden has given you chaos. It's sort of a mirror image of 2020 in some ways, right? Um, long time ago, a Republican political consultant. Um, with whom you are both familiar, told me that the winning Democratic argument in 2020 would be, I swear to God, there'll be days when you forget that I exist. And I think I think they're going to try to do a rebuttal, uh, a State of the Union rebuttal to the idea that he has brought chaos and that the and that the border is part of this. Um, but I guess we'll tune in. To, we'll tune in to see. I mean, optically, Mike, State of the Union would be a great opportunity for him to actually really forcefully lead on this. We know he he recognized the threat when he was getting attacked. Uh, uh, over over uh, police issues. Remember, and he used the podium to say, fund the police uh, very emphatically at the State of the Union. So, I mean, politically speaking, which is what these things will be viewed in clips on social media, that's how most people watch the State of the Union, he could have a nice moment with that. Well, nobody really has a bad State of the Union. You have to remember that. I've never heard that. No, oh, that was a bad speech. I mean, it's the, it's the perfectly scripted environment and place the applause lines and the detractors lines are, are drawn and scripted for exactly what you want to do. And it's very predictable in how the audience. So unless you drool on yourself, which I guess is a possibility, you know, no one's going to, no one's going to say that, well, that was a bad speech, right? Uh, but re remember something. The politics of immigration have fundamentally changed since Trump was president. Trump was president during one of the lowest periods of immigration in the last 25 years. The, the numbers are exploding right now. They're not just high. They're like, they're off the charts high. And the public is reacting to that. And so it, the, the Democrats can't play those the way that they have since the mid-1990s. And the Republicans are trying to. And what they're realizing is without the bully pulpit, without the presidency, the Republicans are really on the defense here. You can keep going more and more extreme, but at a certain point, um, you know, if the president gives them what they want, it's like negotiating with Arafat. You know, Bill, Bill Clinton's basically like, okay, fine, here, here, take, take what you want out of yeah. this. And then Arafat's like, yeah. wait, 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 don't give me what I want. <laughs> Who have we been negotiating <laughs> with, right? It's like, this is what you said you want. We give you everything that you want. And then you walk away from the deal. That doesn't turn out well for the person at the table dealing with that. That's where Mike Johnson's at right now. Okay. And yeah, and they're insisting. I mean, Johnson's insisting. No, no, no. We don't we, actually. The the president has powers that he's not using. Why can't he just do what Trump was doing? And part of the problem is he can't actually do what Trump was doing. Title forty two is expired now, and the Ninth Circuit sort of struck down Remain in Mexico. So, like these two big pieces of 
these two big tools in Trump's toolbox to, to manage the border crisis. Biden doesn't really have them. Well, not more than that. It, the American public doesn't understand or care about the mechanics. Right. You can and can't right. do. Sign what they're saying they can do. Do it by executive order. Have a court challenge. But go and say, let's codify this. Put it, Run offense. Put it on their doorstep and let them deal with it. Let them refuse to sign it. Johnson's not going to be able to get away by saying, oh, we're not going to sign it or bring this up because the president can do this on his own. Like that's that's not going to last for eight months. You can get away with that for a week, especially if Fox News is you know back in your play, which they will, but not eight months. And that's that's where Biden, I think, really has this extraordinary opportunity to, to actually not only win this issue, but cement him. There's not enough votes on the left. I mean, I don't I, there, there's not enough votes on the left with with Gaza, with with the Middle East, with certainly not on the border issue. That's not where the votes are at. The votes by a wide margin are in the middle here. Go and co-opt that issue. Do a Bill Clinton triangulation. You know, Clinton did the same thing on immigration, too. And of course, the, the, le- the voices on the left will harangue him for it. He also won re-election overwhelmingly against Bob Dole in 1996 because he did that. It's smart politics. Learn from that. I think Biden's people are smart enough to do that. I think the people that are concerned enough about Trump are going to give him the leash to say, okay, we may not like where this is going, but it's necessary, especially as there's so much conflict and danger in the world today. So look, I, I, I think that Biden needs to be much more aggressive on this issue than he has. Um, a lot of people are just kind of like worried about, about his flank, especially with the Latino advocacy organizations. You know, I've been uh, critical of that. A lot of these people are my friends. I've been working with them for decades, but the reality is the, 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 the policy pathway is is very clear here and the political pathway is even clearer go fill that void go set out your standard and start driving this message on offense and divide the opposition forces unleash the cavalry on them joe biden go get them over the weekend three u.s army soldiers and more than 40 service members were wounded in a drone attack at a small u.s outpost in northern jordan These are the first U.S. troops killed by enemy fire in the Middle East since Hamas's October 7th attack. The small outpost called Tower 22 supports the Al-Tanif garrison in southeastern Syria, where U.S. Special Operations works with other countries to combat ISIS. And uh, the Islamic resistance in Iraq, which is a group of Iranian-backed militias, uh, claimed credit for the attack. Uh, The group claimed to have attacked four total bases on Sunday, three U.S. bases on the Syrian-Jordanian border and in Syria, and one belonging to Israel. Uh, There have been no confirmation of other attacks. The Biden administration has vowed to respond to the attack. Uh, They put in a statement, uh, we will hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing. Iran's foreign ministry spokesperson denied that they were behind the attack, saying, regional resistance factions do not receive orders from Iran. So they're saying we just give the money to the terrorists and, you know, we don't actually tell them what to do. The president and defense secretary, uh, Lloyd Austin, both said that they would hold Iran-backed militias responsible for the attack. This draws Iran obviously closer into conflict with the U.S. Uh, Friend of the pod, Mark Polymeropoulos, a CIA veteran, wrote on X that, quote, we have utterly failed to deter Iran and its proxies. This was tragically inevitable. Our near obsessive fear of escalation now has a terrible cost. On Tuesday, Biden said he had decided how the U.S. will respond to the strike, but he didn't elaborate on those plans. And after his comment, Iran threatened to decisively respond 
to any U.S. attack on Iran in response to the drone attack. This is all happening against the backdrop of war against Hamas after the terror attack on uh, October 7th. And now uh, Qatari officials are trying to hammer out another pause in fighting and the release of more hostages being held by Hamas. So, uh, Olivier, I'm wondering how a broader war impacts the electoral math here and you know whether it also feels to you like we are uh, inching toward uh, another full-scale war in the Middle East. Things just keep seeming to keep escalating. Well, let's start by saying that the one of the top policy goals of the Biden administration, the uh, averting a broader regional conflict, that has failed. The broader re- regional conflict is now uh, taking place. The only question is uh, how intense it will be and how far it will range. Okay, we've got uh, the Houthi militia in Yemen, uh, also Iran-aligned, who are disrupting global shipping. Um, that's actually got a lot of potentially severe political ramifications here, um, sending ships all the way around Africa instead of the much more direct route will involve uh, higher costs. It would mean disrupted supply chains. And we all know what happens when supply chains get disrupted because we live through the pandemic. This will also renew a t- uh, the po- U.S. public's attention to the conflict. I'm a, f- I'm a foreign policy lover. It's what I gravitate towards. And I'm the first to admit that it is rare that foreign policy decides American national elections. It does happen. It does happen. But um, I'm, I'm skeptical that this as a standalone will have much of an impact. Now, bundled together with immigration and with inflation and other arguments, I can see it having some resonance. Um, but Americans, by and large, can't find Gaza on a map. Um, they would be hard pressed to find to find Qatar or to find um, uh, Saudi or to find. Uh, so I don't know how much resonance it has as a standalone issue, uh, unless of course it, it 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 widens. Personally, as someone who has a long record of writing about uh, war powers and the questions of who gets to decide where where young men and women um, from America are sent into harm's way. I would welcome something of a conversation about, hey, oh, right, we've got people in Syria still. You know, um, why? Like, what's the real rationale? What exactly is happening to Iran? I mean, I've read now two decades of statements out of the Pentagon that justify strikes at Iran or Iran-adjacent forces uh, as we are restoring deterrence. No, you're not. You know, you haven't deterred, you have you haven't deterred much. Uh, and I'll close on this. This is something that the American public and a lot of American politicians don't seem aware that not every global development um, has its root causes in the Oval Office, right? Iran is acting based on its uh, what it, its own perceived self-interest. Um, uh, the one of the groups, uh, uh, actually, Kataib Hezbollah, that came out uh, and and was blamed for the attacks by the Pentagon, has come out and said we're suspending attacks on American forces. Not worth believing, as the Pentagon said, actions speak louder than words. I'm very interested to see where and how the Biden administration responds and whether we see it, because we might not we might not see it. The Biden administration has a lot of tools in its toolkit. Some are military, some are financial. Um, and again, we we may see the response. It would ob- it would obviously be beneficial to the Biden administration if if the American public saw an, an effective response. Um, but in this sort of tit for tat conflict that we're in, I wouldn't expect that response to uh, to decisively end the the conflict that we're in. Can I just ask a follow up? Um, and maybe I hope I can put this clearly. But I am I'm curious 
in your mind, under what circumstances would an escalating conflict in the Middle East or broader Middle East conflict have a have a very pronounced impact on U.S. domestic politics in an election year? And and um, and this brings to mind something uh, Hagar Shamali said on the show. I think it was last week or the week before about the border crisis actually being a national security crisis in that so many of the people who are crossing are on you know watch lists, terrorist watch lists, and we don't actually know who's entering the country because obviously we're apprehending only a handful, only, only some portion of the people who are uh, crossing. And I wonder politically, also, also uh, you know, tie into that, you know, uh, America's unpleasant memories of uh, our involvement in the Middle East over the last number of decades. And and if if there's a political package there that sort of begins to build uh, against Biden. You've tied the issues that I would have tied together here, which is, um, you know, we talk about Iran-aligned militias in Iraq. We talk about the Houthis in Yemen. But, but there's a whole other part of the conversation, which is that Iran has uh, operatives all over the world. And Right now, they've they've chosen to strike American f- military forces um, in the theater in the Middle East. Uh, but if they wanted to escalate this to a nightmare level, um, they could target civilian Americans in other parts of the world. Um, we know Hezbollah has a presence in Latin America, um, at least as of the Obama administration. Uh, national security officials were telling me that they think there are Hezbollah people in the United States. Um, and if if Iran, I don't think Iran's going to do this because this actually would be a, just a dramatic nightmarish escalation. But if they really wanted to turn this into a nightmare for Joe Biden, uh, one of these groups would carry out a successful attack on American civilians somewhere else in the world. Um, you know, again, I think I think the degree to which Iran controls not just its the militias but also its own forces is, I think, entirely up for debate. Um, but that's how that's how this spirals out of control. Mike, we're now looking at a general election that's shaping up to be, and I think I've put it this way before, between the guy who wants to isolate us entirely and a guy who, you know, depending on how this plays, has gotten us into another war in the Middle East. And I wonder how you think the Biden campaign can best play this, best position themselves as a contrast to Trump here, um, given that so much of it depends on what national security concerns demand the commander-in-chief do. Well, look, I think it's very difficult to make a 1930s, 1940s style argument for American isolationism. I mean, it didn't, it didn't, it, 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 it was working then until Pearl Harbor, <laughs> right? Like, you know, as, as Churchill said, you can count on the Americans to do the right thing after every other option is exhausted. And, and there's, there's some truth to that because, you know, we've, we've got, by by the blessings of geography, we're not as engaged with the world the way the rest of the world is, right? We've got these oceans and, and two two you know friendly uh, partners at the north and the south, but I'm increasingly of the opinion that what we are watching is a reorientation of the global order right now. I don't think you can extricate what is happening in Iran from what is happening in Ukraine from what is likely to happen in the next six, eight months in the South China Sea, which you can't extricate from the domestic strife we are witnessing through paid, orchestrated, sophisticated PSYOP operations and and meddling in our domestic politics. It is the same war. There's no, they're not isolated in different areas. 
we are in a truly global theater in a way that war now works and war operates. Biden needs to, to be more, um, uh, you know, aggressive on the international stage. Olivia is exactly right. Like we haven't seen since the end of the Cold War a time when foreign policy was a top concern of Americans. But as I've shared before, you know, the, the, the Russian incursion into Crimea in 2014 signaled the end of the post Cold War era. We are in a new, we are in a new time. This is no longer the post Cold War era as we've known it. There's a hot war in Europe. The Middle East is by design trying to be escalated by the same forces and the same funding with, with other allies in Iran. And China's watching for very good reasons how to be more aggressive by spreading our, our, our military into three different places on the globe. That's the goal. Okay. And the only way that works, by the way, with all the scenarios that have been run for many decades is, you know, the question is, can the United States mount and, and, and sustain a war on three fronts? The only possible way that that works is if we are in the midst of, of extraordinary internal strife. And so what is happening in this country, sure, there are some organic elements, but make no mistake, a lot of our internal chaos and division and the radicalization of a lot of American citizens is the direct result of a very sophisticated operation. That fourth front here in the United States is the most effective. It's the most, it's the one where our enemies are getting the most return on their investment. And it is what is making the, uh, the escalation of conflict in the other three theaters more, um, likely and more effective. We can't fund Ukraine right now. We can't stop illegal immigration from the border. Like that's a damn good investment from Vladimir Putin. Like he's getting really good return on his investment right now. Yeah, very much so. I, mean, I think Molly's, Molly said exactly the same thing, our friend Molly McHugh. So you started, I just want to follow up on the first thing you said, which was, it's very difficult to make uh, an isolationist argument from a political perspective on for Trump to make this argument. And I, th- I think I see that now. Is isolationism the right way to characterize what Trump's uh, foreign policy posture is now? And given the increasing complexity and escalating conflict in other parts of the world that Biden's going to have to respond to, uh, if that's not tenable, what does he do? I think the, the answer to the first question is yes. I mean, Donald Trump is, is making America first is a protectionist, isolationist argument. Uh, it always has been. This is not a new playbook. They're literally going back to, you know, American nativist periods and, and, and literally ripping off the same language and, and driving the same argument. The difference here is I believe it's not just a philosophy. I believe it's actually a tactic that our enemies are using because they've compromised wide swaths of leaders in our country to, 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 to show, to, to, to not only divide us, but to show America's, uh, unwillingness and our lack of resolve to back and support our allies. Our allies are watching too. They're watching what we're doing. And that's where I think what Biden has done has actually been somewhat masterful. And I look, I think there's a lot of very legitimate criticizing of Biden foreign policy, but the only comparison in history that I can make is Harry Truman, right? Truman, right after the death of Roosevelt, is like, oh my God, this guy's the president? Who wanted this guy to be the president? Here's this older, bumbling guy who's incapable of, of, you know, tying his own shoes is now suddenly in, in charge of world affairs. 
you know, Biden gave NATO its teeth, right? He stared down Stalinism and the Stalinist threat as it started to, you know, try to take over Europe. He was there for the formation of Israel, right? In the Middle East. I mean, he, he, Truman created this guy that, that nobody expected to do anything but be a caretaker, redefined the geopolitical order for a century. That's what we're watching unfold right now. Like, like Biden is, it finds himself in this moment where the decisions he's making on these three fronts are going to decide whether this will be an American century again or not. Like those are the stakes. Except at a fourth front, which is here in the United States, where our enemies uh, have the, the technological and resource capacity now to compromise our internal uh, uh, politics. And that that's that's where Biden's at. Like, that's what we're facing. And to me, the only way out of that politically is to move on the offense and demonstrate that strength internationally. It's not to say, let's let's retrench, let's retreat. And, and I, I think we're seeing that from Biden, even though he's got his hands tied in that forefront scenario, they're doing some really remarkable things on the international stage to make sure that the fight is, is being, uh, fought and, 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 and prosecuted offensively. We're not waiting for that attack to come and hit us domestically, Pearl Harbor 9-11, before we start addressing the situation. The Biden administration is moving with, again, with its hands tied behind its back offensively in, in, in each of these regions. And I think that's exactly the right strategy to employ. Olivia, I'm curious if you have any closing thoughts on this segment before we go on to the next one. But something Mike said, I think, uh, invokes something we're talking about uh, before the show, which was um, this fourth front and the, uh, well, let's just call it a crisis of truth or truth, truth gathering, truth knowing and the and and that as at least one uh driver of the internal division in for internal conflict over um who are we as Americans and what are we here to do and uh and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that um I would say that Trump has run is running on the system hasn't worked for you, right speaking to a specific uh, uh segment of the American population, so you know the uh, the national security elites gave you the Iraq war. The financial elites gave you the 07, 08, uh, great recession. Um, you know, all these arguments, you know, you, you know that you're not as well off as you were, or you think you're not as well off as you were and all of that. Um, and, uh, so I think it's, I, I'm, I think Mike's broad point is right. What I would say it's, is that it's possible to campaign on this sort of neo-isolationism to a specific segment of the American population. Um, and I think that's why that's why Trump is doing it. On the on sort of the, the broader fourth front argument, um, I just want to underline how important this has been to Putin's foreign policy, and it's not just the United States. Moscow is lined up behind right wing populism everywhere. There have been a lot. There's been a lot of reporting about ties between um, the National Front in in France. Right, uh, borrowed money from the Russians. Um, you've got Viktor Orban in Hungary, of course. Um, Putin has made this a staple of this um, sort of new Cold War that we're in, um, and so I just want to underline that the importance of that, how much, how reliant he is on sowing that kind of chaos, and we really should not dismiss uh, out of hand the potential effectiveness of those of those tactics. It's really important to understand that, that, that this is happening in France. It's happening in Italy. It's happening in Germany. It's happening in Hungary. It's not just here. This is, 
just just to just to bring home awareness of the scale of the conflict that we're in. Um, uh, the last thing I'll say is I I think what we're going to hear from Biden going forward is the the chaos you're seeing in the Middle East is because I'm standing with Israel. Don't you want to stand with Israel? The chaos we're seeing in Eastern Europe is because I stood for Ukraine and democracy. Don't you want to stand for Ukraine and democracy? It's going to be it's going to be sort of a uh, the practical version of his philosophical argument that this election is about democracy. I think so. When Nikki Haley first launched her campaign last spring, <laughs> Mike, and we were talking about the primary as if it was going to be a primary, we were hoping it was going to be a primary. Uh, yeah, you said, and I think uh, I'm quoting, uh, that she needed to punch Trump in the face. That she needed to you know, be on the attack all the time uh, she didn't do that, <laughs> and now that Trump has pretty well, much for, 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 for yeah. the record, that's my advice to everybody. By the way, <laughs> under any circumstance, <laughs> I probably got the quote right. <laughs> now that Trump has uh, pretty much locked up the nomination, uh, she has decided to finally uh, go on the attack. So let's just take a listen to what she said since the New Hampshire primary. Our producer put together a, a package. It's about a minute. Go ahead. Look, I mean, he can't bully his way through the nomination. I laugh every time I see one of his tweets, every time I see him um, throw a temper tantrum, because I know Donald Trump very well. When he feels insecure, he starts to rail. He starts to rant. He starts to flail his arms. Donald Trump was totally unhinged. Unhinged. He was a bit sensitive, and I think that it... And I think his feelings were hurt, but he threw a temper tantrum out on stage. Seriously. I do think that he is in decline, and I think that he needs to know to step away. I do think that he surrounds himself in chaos, and we can't be a country in disarray and have a world on fire and be in chaos. He's made it chaotic. He's made it self-absorbed. He's made people dislike and judge each other. He's left that a president should have moral clarity and know the difference between right or wrong. And he's just toxic. He's just toxic. Who is she and what did she do with Nikki Haley is my question. Uh, so when we were talking about the, the show today and whether to, whether to put Haley in the show, uh, the question I had was, yeah, but what use is Nikki Haley now? And I asked that question, I think, to both of you. What use is Nikki Haley now to people who don't want Donald Trump to be president. And I think there are other questions like why now and what's she getting out of it? But really like, and I, and I mean that question sincerely because I think there may be some good use of Nikki Haley doing this now, but what is it? Olivier, how do you read this? Well, she's reading, she's writing a lot of uh, <laughs> democratic house race ad copy. You know, if you think if you think that, I mean, I mean, and of course, it's entirely possible the Democrats don't do this because, you know, they're the Democrats, but you can sort of imagine a race in which every candidate from Biden on down is uh, clipping and saving um, not just Chris Christie, but Nikki Haley and to some degree, Ron DeSantis, sort of late campaign Ron DeSantis, you know, recycling their criticisms of Donald Trump. In some ways, I thought the primary was over when a majority of the candidates raised their hands to say they would vote for Donald Trump, even if he were, you know, in legal peril. That's that takes a lot of the sting out of these attacks because, you know, she's coming at this kind of late. You know, it's it's not just that he's taken Iowa and New Hampshire, it's that he's consolidated a lot of delegates elsewhere. Right. So that's so it's it's 
pretty much over. Um, but it's it's certainly what she's doing right now is um, she's doing what I think it's been reported Liz Cheney asked her to do, to stay in the race and provide a Republican voice that criticizes Donald Trump and attacks Donald Trump in old ways, as in you know the moral clarity argument, and in new ways, as in the decline argument. You've seen the Biden administration in the last few months, not Biden himself, but the, but the machinery uh, uh, go toe to toe with Donald Trump on issues of uh, mental uh, stability and and acuity. Um, and so now to have Nikki Haley come out and make the same argument much more bluntly. She's been making the argument for a while. Remember, she said that all candidates over 70, I think, should pass a, a cognitive. She's making it much more incisively now. Um, and again, I think I think uh, uh, I think this is sort of a rearguard action to try to to try to reclaim the Republican Party. I don't think it's going to work. Um, but I also think she's she's you know she's doing she's doing Democratic candidates everywhere a favor. Okay, Mike, she's doing Democratic candidates a favor. She's it's too little, too late. She's not going to win her the nomination. Uh, however, it might be useful. So, what role do you think she can play between now and the general election? And we ought to note she's had a bit of a fundraising bump since since. Uh, uh, New Hampshire, and she's now in the middle of a sp- string of ten fundraisers. So, um, yeah, what 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 use is Nikki Haley now? Well, look, I think there's a couple things. Olivier said it right. This is a rear guard action, and that's the way to look at this. And what what the, the case that Nikki Haley is now prosecuting is fundamentally different than anything that Republicans have done in the past. This is not what Chris Christie was trying to do. Okay, Chris Christie was trying to be like, I'll just New Jersey my way and I can throw elbows as much as this New Yorker and I can get down in the gutter with him and beat him. That was never going to work. Nikki Haley never had a path to this nomination. Nobody did. This is beyond Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump's party. There's no anti-Trump lane big enough to coalesce. But we just got polling out showing that in South Carolina, Trump is winning 58-32. That is a massive setback for Trump. I know it doesn't sound like that, but here's why. Most of Haley's support is not pro Nikki Haley. It's anti Trump. And what she is doing is prosecuting a case that is organizing and setting in concrete the anti Trump lane in the Republican Party that will ensure his defeat in the general election. Anybody who is a casual observer of politics realizes this race is over. She's not even going to be on the ballot in Indiana. She's going to lose her own state 55, you know, 45 or 60, 40, whatever it's going to be. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is she is probably setting herself up to be the person or at least involved in resurrecting this party from the ashes when Trump blows this thing up because the lane, remember, when we founded the Lincoln Project four years ago this month, right, when we were launching, there was a lane of 6 7% maybe of, of Republicans saying, I won't vote for Trump under any circumstance. We're now seeing her open up into the 30s in a bilateral fight where most of those people, again, are anti-Trump. There's very few people who are articulating pol- Nikki Haley's policy positions against you know, Donald Trump saying, Oh, I, I think that we should be, you know, behaving this way in this part of the world. And that's why I'm with Nikki Haley. The reason you're with Nikki Haley is because you're against Donald Trump. And if she's able to score these kinds of numbers, if she's sitting over 20% and takes this beyond Super Tuesday, I'm not suggesting that she will. I hope to God she does. She's giving us some really good data on how strong the anti-Trump lane is in the Republican Party. And it's three or four times bigger than it was four years ago when we co-founded the Lincoln Project and Donald Trump lost that election. 
And by the way, his legal problems are just starting to come into clarity for the American public. So her timing is great. And like I, you know, I, I tweeted out saying she's become the voice of the resistance here. She can't win, but she can prevent him from being the next president of the United States. Ted Cruz jumped all over my tweet and kind of called out the, the troll. So he knew he had a soft spot there, but that's, that's why she is driving Trump crazy. And look at what she's saying. She sounds like George Conway mm-hmm. here, which is awesome. Yeah, she does. And she's taking talking yeah. points right from people who know how to get into this guy's head. She's not having a policy debate. She's messing with this guy she, directly and he's responding. And very interestingly, this mega donor, Republican mega donor confab that happened last week in Palm Beach, Florida, where both sides are making the case. These donors, I mean, a good third of these billionaires, by the way, are just, they're dumb as rocks. Okay. And, and they, they're just, you <laughs> yeah. know, they're, it's like they're playing, you know, roulette. It, it, I feel this way. So I'll throw a million, a few million here. But for two thirds of them that are, these are very sophisticated operators, right? It's like this weird difference in these rooms. They're looking at this and going, wait a second. Haley can't win. But how much longer can we be stuck with this Trump guy? Like, what are we doing here? And how much damage is this going to do to the House and the Senate side? The biggest thing imperiling the Senate for the Republicans is Donald Trump. McConnell knows that. Johnson's all but, you know, done as this speaker in, after November. So, you know, the, the, the Republicans are in a really, really difficult spot and, and they're about to tie themselves to this anchor that's going to start sinking further as his legal problems get worse and his mental acuity gets worse. And he starts reminding people why they hated him in the first place. That so much describes why Biden's rise is, is starting to coalesce. His, his, his supporters are starting to coalesce and his rise in the polls is happening is people are going, Oh shit, Donald Trump is back. Like we've got to, you know, you know, most Americans aren't like people like us or people who listen to the show who are, who are very, you know, close observers of this. If it's a Trump-Biden race, I've been saying this for a long time, the, 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 the advantage is clearly Biden. And we're already seeing, seeing those numbers move in that direction. And Trump is only making it worse for himself. Long way of saying that's what Haley is doing that is very, very different. She's not going to win the nomination. But if she keeps her support levels over 20% re- regularly, continuously, she has the power to prevent Donald Trump from becoming the next president of the United States. And so when Olivier says that there may have been a conversation with Liz and, and Nikki, I mean, yeah, uh, it makes perfect sense. This is really smart. It's a really smart play if that's the goal. So if that's the goal, yeah. Uh, uh, so so we're going to learn a lot about the Republican electorate as a result of this, um, uh, which is which is important. Um, and Olivier, to Mike's point about Donald Trump finally sort of being in the news again and maybe coverage shifting to the matchup between Trump versus Biden and also focusing on what Trump is actually doing and what he's actually saying. And, and hey, maybe some more cameras on him will show people that he's not quite as there mentally uh, as he used to be. Um, do you think we're about to start seeing that that shift happen? Because we've talked for, I think, some number of weeks on this show, months on this show about maybe the primary has a... The, there have been a lot of reporters and news outlets really heavily focused on covering the primary as if it's a very competitive primary when it was really Donald Trump's all along. And I wonder if now we're going to finally start to shift the focus to, hey, this guy's back and uh, and he's just as dangerous as ever before. So I've 
I have three responses. The first one is uh, you've heard the president say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative, right? Like any other incumbent, he wants this to be a choice, not a referendum. Um, there has been reporting that the Biden folks were frustrated with the, they, they did internal campaign polling and found that a lot of Americans just had not accepted that this was Biden Trump. Um, that goes directly to Mike's point, which is that a lot of Americans just have not, we know that we know that most of America doesn't want to see this rematch. But apparently the Biden campaign polling found also that a lot of Americans, um, a lot of independent Americans, um, did not believe that this was the rematch happening. And so as that happens, um, we're going to see some sorting of the uh, of the electorate. Um, and I had, a th oh, and the third thing I would say is that one of the most important numbers for the Biden campaign is not the head to head matchup. It is the Democratic intensity. Um, how many Democrats say they're really engaged and will definitely vote. They are worried about people sitting on the sidelines and they are, that ties into their concerns about Americans not having processed that this is the matchup. Trump and Biden agree on one crucial thing, which is it's, it's the general election now. Um, and, and I think that, um, I, I, I don't know how the numbers are going to go, honestly, I have no, I, I, but I do see the argument um, from the from the Biden camp, that as it becomes clearer that this is a choice between these two men, that they that, that will benefit them politically. Okay, now that we are uh, caught up on a few of the most important stories this week, let's turn to uh, the developments you are watching. Olivia, what'd you bring? Uh, this week's hearing, where social media CEOs were grilled by uh, senators. I think is is important. Um, I think we are seeing movement at the federal and at the state level for uh, uh, to rein in social media. If you've been following um, young Americans' mental health, you know that it's been in crisis since before the pandemic, and you've probably seen the charts and graphs that suggest that it's around 2012 that things really took a spike for the worse. And that coincides with the rise of what I'll call required social media um, when it became uh, necessary, quote unquote, for teens to be on social media in a way that that before that it was nice if they were, but it became sort of a social requirement. Um, and so what I'm watching now is, one, is there any federal legislation moving forward on, on big tech? Um, is there any plausible federal legislation moving forward on big tech? There are a lot of complicated issues here. And while Republicans and Democrats agree that uh, agree to be hostile to big tech, they're hostile for different reasons. Um, and the one area where they come together is on youth mental health. Mm. So I'm sort of curious to see that, but also curious to see that happening at the state level. There have been, you've seen states that have uh, passed laws now restricting access to social media to people 16 or over, for example. And so what I'm watching is to see, was this hearing uh, a very thea theatrical blip, or are we going to see actual movement? Um, one of my old journalism mentors, when I started covering Congress, said, "You need to you need to focus on movement, not motion." And so, one of my questions is: Is this is this hand waving in the direction of the problem? Is this one theatrical hearing, or are we actually going to see some mm. steps taken in the Capitol? Yeah, good one, um, Mike. I just brought up. Quick mention here that you will be familiar with. So Matthew Taylor, who joined us for a two-part series on uh, titled Holy War uh, a few months back, uh, which was unpacking uh, uh, independent or uh, non-denominational, if you will, 
um, charismatic Christians at the Capitol on January 6th and this idea of strategic spiritual warfare fueling a lot of the Christian uh, supremacy. Um, uh, and Christian supremacists, the word the Capitol, just put out a 25-minute documentary uh, featuring his research into the New Apostolic Reformation leaders and their role in fomenting the January 6th riot. Uh, it's called Spiritual Warriors, Decoding Christian Nationalism at the Capitol Riot. And so <clears throat> and so, if you haven't listened to our uh, two-part series here, or you have and you want to go deeper, and you don't want nine hours of, of podcast listening, uh, I would, and this is in video form, so you can actually see what these people look like, uh, Che An and, uh, and some of the other um, uh, leaders in this movement. You can put faces with names and voices. I highly recommend it. It's a it's a quick and engaging watch, and I think it will make some of this stuff come to life for you. So uh, I encourage people to go check that out, and we'll, we'll have Matthew on again uh, in the future, I think, when his book comes out. Uh, what did you bring, Mike? Uh, yesterday, Forbes reported that there is a major arms deal coming together between the United States and Greece which is notable uh, in large part because one of the contingencies is that Greece essentially sells some of its current stockpiles to Ukraine. And the beauty of this is the Biden administration has found a loophole to get Ukraine armed by sending new weapons to NATO members and NATO moving its current arsenals over to Ukraine. So God bless the Biden administration. Uh, that and a lot of other creative uh, you know, I think, um, endeavors, including, including this discussion of selling Russians $200 billion in frozen assets. Uh, now that takes time, right? It takes a little time to sell the yacht, right? You can't just take it out to the flea market and sell it the next day. But there's a lot of money, you know, sitting on the table. And I think it would be ideal if we could turn some of those Russian assets into the war machine uh, that would ensure its defeat. All that money that he used to spend to buy off and compromise so many uh, people in the West and those democracies that Olivia was talking about, hopefully can now be used to, to, to prosecute the war effort against him. But this, this arms deal with Greece is something to watch because if this is um, going to work out the way that we think it is, um, we may have found a way to get the Ukrainians the arms that they need quickly. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful, at least, you know, it, it's promising to see that that we are moving strategically on different fronts, despite our own Congress's incapable, uh, incapacity to to move on our own. What a good move. I'm glad you mentioned that because I hadn't even seen that, uh, that story. That's terrific. Uh, okay, let's uh, head over to Politicology Plus. We're going to talk about <laughs> the, the Taylor Swift PSYOP mm. conspiracy that MAGA is uh, spinning. Um, before we do, Olivia, where can everybody find you on the internet? Uh, I'm, I'm still, I, I regret to say I'm still on X at Onox. Um, and I, I could be found there. I'm not, I'm not posting as much as I, as I used to. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of where I sit. I ha I did start a sub stack just as an outlet, but it's more goofy and less, less analytical. Um, as you are now based in, uh, in, in, in Paris, I encourage you to go read. I, I think I may have found the Frenchest thing ever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't wait to read. Uh, Mike, where are you these days? Find me on X uh, at Madrid underscore Mike. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. 
If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.